Good to be back here at the South. I have, uh, we worship regularly over at uh, Willow, the main campus on 33, and so uh, it's just good to be here. Um, in my travels, I, I do tend to lose things from time to time, and so this Bible is my favorite Bible, and I'd lost it and couldn't recall where it was until just over a week ago. I was back visiting some uh, people in Calgary and had stayed overnight, and as I went down to my accommodations, there was my Bible sitting on the bed down there, and the family had said, yeah, we found it. We just thought we'd leave it there. We knew you'd be back. So I was very excited about that. And to let you know that this whole uh, snow and, and uh, cold and winter thing is really quite relative, in uh, January, I had the unfortunate um, uh, responsibility that my president had said, Russ, we need you to go to uh, Orlando, Florida for a conference. And I said, yes, sir. You know, there's times when you just know right away that you need to be obedient. And so I said, yes, sir, right away. And I did it. Now, we just happened to hit Orlando at, uh, at a time when they were suffering through some really rough winter conditions. And so my wife and I, we got up on Sunday morning and it was plus five in Orlando, Florida. So we attended church with some friends that we were there with, and uh, the worship leader got up on that Sunday morning and thanked us. There was about 1,500 people in the congregation that Sunday, thanked us for braving the harsh conditions and coming out to church. I mean, there's nothing on the roads. They're all dry. Everything was fine, but it was plus five, and they said it was just harsh winter conditions. And so we sat there and giggled, the two of us. And thought that is quite funny, actually, that they would think. So I texted some friends in Saskatoon and told them that uh, that had just happened. They texted right back and they said, It's minus 25 this morning, and the worship leader did not thank us for coming out. <laughs> they just expected us to be there. So I just think we need to understand that it's all relative, and so let's not get too uh, sort of excited about what's going on. Other people are suffering in other locations as well. So. Um, as uh, Glenn mentioned, it's my privilege to uh, represent an association of churches that uh, is not connected to uh, Willow Park, which is really interesting because I live here in Kelowna, and we don't have any churches here in Kelowna. And so then we just landed at uh, Willow, and we're quite glad to do that. And then it's my job. I travel about 50% of the time, and so took Pastor Phil out for um, lunch one day, and I said, Phil, I'm, I'm going to be here with you, but I'm like your best and worst member because on the one hand, uh, you'll never hear any complaint from me. I'm going to be really good that way, but on the other hand, you'll rarely see me as well. And so uh, I don't know how much I can be of service to you. And so then he just said, well, can we have you sub in at some of our churches on, on occasion? I said, I'd be glad to do that. And so it's my privilege to be here with you this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at an issue that I think is really important to understand. And it's, uh, uh, you'll see it as we move through the passage and as we move through some of the stories I've got for you this morning. But let me pray for us. And then we'll just, um, we'll just dive in this morning together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. And, and communion is always such a healthy time to bring us back and understand what an incredible Savior we have. And as we sang about your grace again this morning too, Father, that's, that's just a gift that we can't ever earn or somehow well up enough goodness in us that we deserve it. It's just your gift. And Father, you here with us right now is, is a gift to the presence of your Holy Spirit in our midst. Uh, Father, we just ask now that you would teach us that your word would um, come alive for us in perhaps ways that, that we haven't seen before. And that, Lord, we would honor you with the time that we spend together. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen. Some time ago in reading I was doing, I came across this story about a, a Russian priest who had uh, served God faithfully over the many years of his life. And, and he was getting older and and as he aged, the, the days were turning into weeks, the weeks turned into months, and, and he just noticed over this time that there was this, 
this distance that was happening in his soul. And he grew more concerned as the time went on, and, and wintertime had come, and, and um, he decided to just go for a walk one evening late in the night and, and just see if he couldn't process what he had experienced and was experiencing in his, in his own journey with God. And as the story is told, they say that as he walked out into that cold Russian winter night, the only thing that was colder was his own soul in the sense of his distance or his sense of disconnect from his, his God that he'd served so long. And absentmindedly, he'd wandered through the streets of his small Russian community and, and just lost in his thoughts trying to figure out what's going on, what's happening in my life, why is I feel the way that I do, when all of a sudden he's awakened with a, a, a yelling and there's a Russian commander standing before him and he says, who are you and what are you doing here? And, and the priest snaps up and looks at him and says, what did you say? And the commander barks at him again, who are you and what are you doing here? And the Russian priest says to the commander, how much do they pay you for what you do? And the commander says, well, what's that got to do with anything? And he said, because I'll pay you the exact same amount if you'll come and work for me. And the commander said, well, what would I do? And he said, every single day from now to the rest of my life, I want you to ask me those same two questions. Who are you and what are you doing here? If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke. And we pick up the story of Jesus sending out the, the 72 and, and uh, it's just this moment of, of uh, commission and this moment of excitement as they, they see God being at work in their lives and, and calling them and, and directing them. And, and so I want to read through the passage and then we're going to unpack it and try to understand some of the things and, and allow those two questions to, to come into your uh, thinking as we go through this passage. And we got the, the words that you can follow up on the screen or on your Bibles as you have them there. I'm, not, I'm just going to read out from verses 1 through to 21. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves, and do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eat, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be lifted up in the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me, and he who rejects you rejects me, but he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. 
And the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All right, let's break down the story and just see what God's got for us here this morning as we unpack what's happening in this passage. Now, we saw that it's the, the 72 that are, are getting the message, uh, the message and the mission to, to go out into the world, but there's some stuff there that we want to unpack about what exactly is happening. And so look at the passage and just watch through, and let's sort of look at the big picture here of what's actually taking place in verses 1 through to 16. They get their marching orders. They're told to go out. But first of all, look what Jesus says to them in those opening verses about what's going to happen. And it says that... Um, He sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town. So that's key phrase there, ahead of him, to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So Jesus looked out, could see with his own eyes that he was sending them out on a mission where there was necessary work that needed to be done because there was this harvest that was ready to be filled, to be taken, to be done, to be brought in. People didn't know that Jesus was there. People didn't understand that that the kingdom was about to come. People didn't understand that they had this opportunity that was right there in front of them to to find out the answer to those questions that we were looking at just a moment ago. And so he sends those workers out, and he says, as you're going even, I want you to be praying. And, you know, for us, the things haven't changed in, in all 2,000 years that have gone by. I think if God were, were to visibly sort of show up here today in, in that same sort of way that he showed up with those 72, the message wouldn't be different. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. But let's be clear about when we say that, because there's been a, an era, if you will, a time, I think, when we've looked at something like that and said, well, we need to pray for more missionaries to go out into the foreign fields, which we can keep praying for that. But when he said the harvest was plentiful, he was sending them out right there where they were. He wasn't sending them across an ocean. He wasn't sending them far away. He was sending them out into their own local areas. He's like, the local area here is, the harvest is plentiful. But there's not enough of my followers yet who clearly see that we need to get the message out. And so as we pray, we need to pray that we need to put our hands in as Jesus invites there in in verse 1. He says that he sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. So Jesus was saying, I want you to partner with me and I want you to understand that that there's this harvest out here, but the workers are necessary. We need more workers. And so we get to partner with Jesus in the work that he's about, the kingdom work that he wants to see happen, and he invites us to join with them in this process. So there's some clear insights to remember as we work our way through this passage. So number one is just that one, to be prayerful. He says that to us, to be prayerful in, in what's going on. Be prayerful about the task that's in, in, in front of us. How are you and I doing in that regard? Do we find that to be an ongoing, regular thing of our own individual prayer lives where we say, God, open up the eyes of not only myself, but my church family. 
that we would see the very same things that you would see, that we would see people as you see them, that you would see the opportunities that, that you already have there for us, but you're just asking us to partner with you in that opportunity. Are we prayerful? Are we praying for God to increase the amount of people who both see the need and make themselves available to join in this partnering relationship that Jesus invites us to? But it's not just that. Because he goes on and he gives more instructions. He says, the harvest is plentiful. Yeah, that's true. He wants his hand to workers. But then look at verse 3. He says, go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. And so what's the message there? Well, the message is to be alert. First of all, we're supposed to be prayerful, but now we need to be alert. Be alert for the things that are happening around us. We face an enemy in this calling. Peter reminded the followers, as he wrote in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, saying, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. Be alert. Be prayerful, Jesus says, as he sends these workers out into the field. He says, I want you to be praying as you go, but I also want you to have your eyes open. Be alert. What else does he say? He says, don't take a purse or a bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the way. I think there's almost maybe a bit of interesting cultural background here with this one. Because he says, be focused. That's the message, I think, in that verse. So be prayerful, be alert, but be focused. Because in in Middle Eastern culture, one of the great things was, and still is, is that they're such a social people. And so he says, like, don't even greet anyone in the sense, don't get wrapped up in in all the stuff that's happening, but stay focused in what you're called to do. I love this quote from Stephen Covey. And he's the guy, the seven habits of highly effective people. And Covey says this, it's actually easy to get caught up in the thick of thin things. Isn't that a great quote? It's actually easy to get caught up in the thick of thin things. In other words, our our lives start to get uh, get misdirected maybe a little bit and and off focus because, well, there's so so many things going on. We can get so busy. And Jesus says, I want you to be focused so be prayerful, be alert, figure out what's going on, make sure you've got your eyes open that you're watching, but be focused as well, make sure you understand the task that you're given to. And then, in verses 5 through to 7, he says, be a people of peace. Be a people of peace. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. And he goes on and gives some other instructions regarding how they're supposed to handle their hospitality. At this time in cultural history uh, in the Middle East there, that was part of the natural Jewish greeting when they went from a home was that they would say the word shalom, the, the Jewish word for peace, the Hebrew word. And so he says, yes, do that. And he says, the peace that they're going to bestow is, is amazing because actually they're working with who? The prince of peace, Right? And so as they bring that message, it's just not a cultural thing. It's actually a deeply spiritual thing that they're going to bring. They're connected to the very... Remember, we said that they're in a partnership, so they're connected with Jesus to the, to the calling and the work that he's called them to do. And so he says, I want you to bestow peace, and I want them to sort of understand who you are. You're my followers. And you're going to bring peace. Because he says to them, if... A man of peace is there. Your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. It's amazing. So we're told to be prayerful. We're told to to be alert, to be uh, 
watchful. We're also told to be focused, and we're told to be a people of peace. But verses 8 through to 12, I think we're, we're told to be steadfast. That, that idea of hanging in there, because tough times are going to come. And 8 through to 12, it's, it's about what's happening and, and what's going on there that are, that are easy to get discouraged and easy to cause us to lose our way. He said, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. So again, it's part of that mission that they're partnering with Jesus about because Jesus wants to get the word out that he's here. And so he says, when you go there, tell them who you're representing. That the kingdom is so close by virtue of them being partners with what Jesus is about and what Jesus is going to be doing. Let them know who you are there, who you are there for. The kingdom of God is near you, it says in verse 9, this is but in verse 10, but when you enter a town and are not welcome, Jesus already understands there's going to be times when you go and things are going to go swimmingly well. That's great. We love those times. But then there's also times when you're going to go and it's not going to be received well. Hang in there, Jesus says. Hang in there. He says, even the dust of, the, of your town that sticks to our feet, verse 11, we wipe off against you, yet... Be sure of this. Now listen, here's where the partnering thing comes back in about what Jesus is doing with them. The kingdom of God is near you. They're messengers of Jesus and they didn't even realize that as they were there, the kingdom of God was so close to them but they had rejected it. Wow. Be steadfast. Hang in there when the going gets tough. And then we get the warnings in verses 13 through to 16, the warnings of rejection. So for those places, those towns, those people, when they back off and they say, no, I'm not interested, well, we can get all caught up in in who these different places are, but the key verse is verse 16 in the passage in verses 13 through to 16. Because he says, he who listens to you, that town, that individual who listens to you, listens to me. Remember, we're in a partnership with Jesus, fulfilling what Jesus has called us to do, to go and take the gospel to the world in which we live. And he says, he who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Jesus puts the whole thing into perspective. It's that big picture thing again. So don't worry about you being rejected because you need to understand they're not really rejecting you. They're actually rejecting me. And when they reject me, they're rejecting the one who sent me to this mission that I've just called you to. Hmm. Verse 17. This is the answer to our first question. Verse 17, verse 18, on to through to 21. It says, verse 17, the 72 returned. So we don't really know how long this took. The Bible doesn't tell us whether it was just a, a day or, or a few weeks or what. We're not sure. But they went out and they did this and then they come back. But as they come back, the Bible does make it clear how they come back. Because look at what it says in verse 17. They came back with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Wow. The disciples come back excited about the mission that they've been on. Now, you just got to put yourself back into their situation, into their position. This is their first um, foray into this kind of work. This is their first opportunity that they've been given to go out two by two. Jesus isn't with them. He's just commissioned them to go. But I love, I so love the fact that verse 17 tells us clearly that they came back with the variety of experiences that they had, they came back with joy. You know, it is my privilege to travel all across Western Canada visiting pastors and churches 
And I wish I saw more of verse 17, to be honest with you. I wish I saw more churches that were filled with joy because they're saying, we're out there doing the work that God's called us to. We've partnered with them. We've understood the message that that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. But man, oh man, are we ever excited about what God is doing? Or pastors, some who are new, some who have been at it for a long time, Somewhere along their journey, they're a little bit like the Russian priest that I told you about in the introduction, where they've lost their perspective, they've lost that sense of joy. And I just like in my imagination to picture Jesus here with the disciples as they're sitting down and and sipping some coffee, and, and they come back, and they can't wait to unload and tell Jesus all the things that have been going on. And he sits there listening to them and, and hears the joy of their voices as they report to him, Oh, Savior, you've got to see it. You've got to hear it. It's amazing. Even the demons submit to us. Verses 18 and 19 are actually kind of interesting. Scholars don't agree. Um, some believe that the verse, is, verse 18 is a historical reference to when Jesus actually saw Satan being uh, kicked out of heaven in its origin in the first time when he left. Others think it refers to what the disciples are saying about the casting out of demons, that as that was happening, Jesus saw this happening to Satan. Not really crucial to our understanding of the overall passage, but the next verse speaks of the authority that Jesus gave them. It says, I want you to understand, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you, however... And boy, do we ever have to pause there. However, it speaks to our question. Jesus says, however, I hear your excitement. I hear how how that was such a neat experience for you. I hear all the neat things that happened as you went and did your your local ministry of, of just the people in the area where you were called to minister. But I want you to redirect a little bit. Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, verse 20. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Hmm. Jesus draws their identity away from what they're actually doing and reminds them that you're my child. You're my child. He looks at them and says, your names are written in heaven. This is what defines us people. And if you forget everything else that we say here this morning, I want you to clearly understand this truth. This truth guides us, you see. It profoundly impacts how we see and how we live our lives because this truth guides us when we scale the mountaintops and when we accomplish those amazingly great things because we recognize that when we come back to this truth that it's not about us and what we're accomplishing. Rather, it's about who we are and who it is that we serve. We are children of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This truth sustains us when we go through those dark nights of the soul like the Russian priests when all seems to to have disconnected in our lives when, when we can't see the next step that we're supposed to take with any sense of clarity whatsoever and we wonder, is it really all real? This truth profoundly impacts us. If we'll hang on. I'm a child of God. 
I belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that is unalterable. And that truth right there is so important. Because you see, so many things in life can change. Job loss, sickness, family split up, all kinds of things can come into our lives and brokenness can be the result. But you see, that brokenness never ever defines us when we understand who we are in Jesus Christ. Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, the sooner you learn this truth, the sooner you can impact the destiny and the understanding of the little ones around you. Your daughter may be bright and incredibly beautiful. Your son may be intelligent and athletically gifted. But those things do not define them. Introduce them to the Savior who designates them with an identity that is eternal. And that identity is, you're my child. You belong to me. And everything about you is defined in me. And that's unalterable. So you see, it doesn't matter what happens in life. All those years that go by, those weeks that turn into months, those months that turn into years, those years that turn into decades, my identity is not altered because I am a child of God. Who are you? We have to come to a clear resolution to this question. You are not your job. You are not your gender. You are not rich or poor, smart or stupid, known or unknown. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are his child. That is your identity. And that can sustain you through all kinds of highs and definitely through all kinds of lows. Turn quickly over to Romans chapter 8. Paul got it. Paul's life had been at one point defined by who he was was his role, his title, his job as a Pharisee. But he changed when he understood who Jesus Christ was to him. In Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through to 17, we see Paul talking to the church and saying, I want you to understand something. And so just listen as we read these words, Romans 8, starting at verse 12. He says, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God, now listen to this, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, identity. We are sons of God, children of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive a spirit, now listen to this, you receive the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. How incredibly personal and intimate this relationship is that we are identified by. Abba, Father. And he says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share with his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Who are you? Paul makes it clear in these verses where our identity lies. You see, I have the Spirit of God living in me, and that cries out. That Spirit of God living in me cries out and allows me this incredible privilege to come running into the very throne room of God, crying out, Daddy, Daddy, Abba, 
the Spirit invites us as, our, as children of God to come into that very personal and holy, incredible place called the throne room, and we can come busting right in and say, Abba. When I was pastoring, I always had this rule with my administrative assistants that if my children or grandchildren showed up, nothing else mattered. They were allowed complete access into my office. She may have been told that morning that I didn't want to be disturbed by anybody because of whatever was going on. But when we were in Saskatoon, and if my three-year-old grandson showed up, you better believe he was allowed to come in and disturb whatever it was that I was doing. Because, you see, we had this relationship that was different than everything else that was happening there. And he had access to me at any time that he wanted because he was my grandchild. Paul says, because of who we are, we have access. He says, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. It's our identity. The devil wants to identify you by your failures, by your mistakes, by your grades, by your gender, by your orientation, by your sins, by your successes, by your job, any number of things that can change with the whims of this world. But the Spirit of the living God wants you to know that you are the child of the one true living God and that will never, ever change. Wow. Doesn't matter. It won't change. I got divorced. Doesn't change that truth. I, I lost my job. Doesn't change that truth. I, I flunked out of university. Doesn't change that truth. There's so many things that can happen in our lives that the world and the devil wants to identify us with, but God says, No, you're my child. It's our identity. And when the 72 come back and they're so excited about the things that they had accomplished, Jesus says, and it just, I can just see the joy in his face because it tells us here in a second we're going to see that he was joyful. But he says, I want you to understand something. This is just such a teachable moment for us because I, I'm excited with you about the things that happened, but, 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 don't ever forget your names are written in heaven. The answer to our second question, who are you? You're a child of God. Don't ever forget it. But verse 21, he goes on to say, at that time Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, and he goes on to talk and praise his Father. He says, I praise you because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, it was for your good pleasure. What's he talking about? Why was Jesus full of joy? Well, what had just transpired? The disciples had been sent out by Christ to go and join with him in, in his mission of telling the world that he's the Savior. They come back in verse 17. They come back with joy. They'd finished the assignment that Jesus had given to them. But in the same context, it says that Jesus himself is rejoicing or is full of joy. What's the connection? I believe the connection actually is the mission. He first of all says, that's great that you're excited, but don't ever forget who you are. But at the same time, then he's smiling because their joy was about going out to do the mission and he re-identifies who you are. Yeah, don't forget that you're my child. That's the most important thing. But Jesus' joy is because they got it. As his children, they got it. They come back full of joy and Jesus is full of joy and their joy was in the work that Christ had given them to do and his joy was in their response to the mission. And the only thing that he corrects or clarifies in it is their identity. When you and I capture the mission 
that Jesus Christ has given it and live it out. And live it out. One of the results of that is joy for our Savior. How, how cool is that? That your life and my life fleshed out doing what God's called us to do, understanding who we are in Christ brings joy to our Savior. Wow. 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 What are you doing here? Who are you? You're a child of God. What are you doing here? You're doing the will of the Father. That's the answer. I'm fulfilling the mission that Jesus gave some 2,000 years ago. I'm bringing joy to my Savior as I walk in obedience to Him. Quickly, just over to John chapter 15, where again we see this idea of joy in what's going on in part of the mission. John chapter 15, starting at verse 9. Jesus teaching, and He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, if you get the mission, if you fulfill what I've called you to do, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, His joy in us, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than he lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. He goes on to let them know that there's this joy opportunity that's there if we'll capture the mission and do what he's called, understanding who it is, first of all, that we are in Christ Jesus. Just this morning as I was praying over this and trying to figure out if there's anything else that God wanted out of this message, I got this story that came to me. When my son was five years old, we were living in a little town in Saskatchewan called Maryfield. And... Uh, Five years old, he's in kindergarten, and it was way back in that archaic time when they had field days where they actually gave out prizes for first, second, and third. You know, that was a bad time back then when they were doing that kind of stuff, but they did. And so, uh, so my son was uh, an enthusiastic participant in field day, but athletically gifted was not two words that you'd naturally associate with him at that point in his life. And so on this particular field day, um, they're going to run the race and so the grade five, or the grade kindergarten kids, five years old, they all line up and, and they take off down the field. And I'm at the far end waiting for them as they come racing down the track. And, and there's always those little rascals. They're just so fast. I didn't like those kids. Watching them race down the field ahead of everybody else. And I knew you're going to get the ribbon for one and you're going to get it for two. And, and so I'm watching the race and my son, he's way back. And he's running and he's running and he's racing. And, and I'm at a point now where I'm just hoping that he won't be dead last. And so I'm watching as he comes and, and there's just great joy in his face. And he comes across the, the finish line and, and I don't know why, but it's important to me that I tell you this, that he was second last, not last. And so he came across and, and he comes to the finish line and he comes right over to me. And I wasn't sure how I was going to console him for being second last in this class. But he looks at me and he says, Dad, did you see me run? And I said, yeah. You were great, son. He says, I know I ran my best, Dad. And as I heard, thought that story through this morning, I thought... You know, he had it right even back then, and I didn't, because I was comparing him to all the other kids that were running, and he was second last. 
But he wasn't comparing himself to any of the other kids. He was running for me. Because he said, Dad, did you see how I ran? That whole race, he ran for me. When you and I get to heaven, we can walk into that throne room and look at the Father and say, Abba, did you see how I ran? Because we're not compared to anybody else in God's eyes. We're individually his children, identified as his sons and daughters, and he's only concerned about the race that he's called you to run for him. I was blown away afresh this morning at the intimacy of my father, who when I get there and I say, Abba, did you see me run? His response is going to be every single step, my son. The worship team is going to come and play a song that I requested. And you come on up, team. But I want to warn you about this song. That the song is a, a prayer of surrender. It's called I Lay Me Down. Written by Chris Tomlin and recorded by him. But I've loved it for a period of years now because I've come back to it many different times to say to God, okay, God, I come back to you and I lay me down. I'm not my own. I belong to you alone, is what the wording says. And then there's a chorus that says, it will be my joy to say, your will, your way. And so I, as the team plays it, I just want to warn you that sing it as that prayer of surrender, if you can this morning. And, and understand today that I really believe God wants you to understand you're his child, he loves you. But there is a race that we need to run. We need to do the commission that he's called us to do. But we don't do it out of any kind of comparison or anything else. We do it understanding who our identity is. And when that last step comes, that we will be able to get to the throne room and say, Abba, did you see me run? And he's going to say, yeah, every single step. So use this as your own re-surrender, perhaps, or first surrender this morning to our good Father.